Hi, it's Alan, and I'm delighted today to share with you an interview I did a few days ago with Elizabeth Colbert. And you probably know Elizabeth's work since 1999. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she's done a lot of stories about climate change. Uh, before that, she was a reporter at The New York Times, and she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for her book, The Sixth Extinction. Now, the reason I wanted to talk with her is because of something she said last year during an interview on the Longform podcast. And it was near the end of the interview, the host, I think it was Evan Ratliff, uh, Evan asked Elizabeth whether or not she thinks, when she sits down to write, whether or not she thinks her work will make a difference. Will her reporting actually change anything? And here's what she said. That is a really, really good question. I think that I still, uh, I still believe in a place called hope. No, I still, um, I still nurse that idea that in my heart of hearts that something that you write that there's some key to this all. Like we're all looking for the skeleton key that's going to unlock. And people are going to go, oh, yeah, that, you know, that's why we have to do something. And um, so I, I don't want to say that I've completely dispensed with that. I think that that's what motivates most journalists. You know, like, I think this information is going to somehow make a difference. On the other hand, I have also, I have dispensed with a lot of that. Now, I remember when I heard that for the first time, I stopped in my tracks because you know, if Elizabeth Colbert, New Yorker staff writer and Pulitzer Prize winner, if she doesn't think her work really matters anymore, then what hope is there for the rest of us schlubs out here working in far less visible and far less prestigious places? So I emailed her and she was incredibly gracious, emailed me back and she agreed to take time to talk with me and to help me wrestle with some of the questions that have been sort of the spark for this Towers of Babel project. So we got on Skype, and I played her that clip from her long-form interview, the one that I just played for you, and then I asked her why she has mostly dispensed with the idea that her work is going to matter, that it's going to have an impact, that her work is going to change anything. Why has she dispensed with that notion? Here's Elizabeth. Well, I think that if you have been covering a story like climate change um, for a long time, as I have by now, you have to, you know, you have to be have a really, you know, Charlie Brownish sense of things to keep coming back and saying, oh, this this is going to be the story that made a difference when you've seen so many stories by now uh, that have not made the difference and. I remember years and years ago, I went to uh, Alaska. This was back in, I guess it was probably 2004. So we're talking 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And a graduate student or a postdoc there said to me, you know, I kept waiting for the story, the the piece of research. I guess she was more interested in research that, you know, the, the insight that was going to change this, this conversation um, you know, was it, and, and a lot, a lot of stuff was, was happening at that point that, you know, we now consider old hat, but that was, that was new and shocking at the time. And, 
And she said, and I, but I realized that's never going to happen. You know, there's never going to be that aha moment where everyone says, oh, this is the key piece of information that we needed. We're just going to either ignore, <laughs> ignore things or sort of blunder along um, without coming to that, you know, as it were, realization. And do you think that's unique to the climate beat, or do you do you feel like you've dispensed with a lot of that in terms of, you know, some other beats, most beats, all beats? Well, I, I mean, I I think, you know, as I said when I was talking with Evan, I I don't want to say that I have completely gotten over that aspiration. It it it, it is on some level you know, something you have to on some level believe if you continue on in journalism. Uh, otherwise, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, very much what is the point of all this? Although, you know, there's, there's, I suppose, there's a way of informing people or simply writing that doesn't have to be motivated by the desire to affect change. Um, but I think what, when you look at what's happening in the world at large, I think it really quite clearly challenges the very fundamentals of what many of us got into journalism to do. You know, right. the idea that, uh, you know, truth mattered, facts mattered, you know, wow, that, that really seems to be very, very, very much up for debate right now. Right. Well, you know, I mentioned in the email that I went to high school with Bill McKibben and have mm -hmm. tracked his, his career mm -hmm. pretty, pretty closely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I ran across, uh, you know, he transformed himself, you know, clearly from a full-time environmental journalist into a climate activist. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I ran across a piece he wrote for uh, transom.org. And he was describing sort of the journalist, you know, the journalist code that he had learned years ago, that you mm -hmm. faithfully, faithfully report both sides of a story and you've got to maintain sort of a dispassionate interest in whatever the outcome might be. And then he wrote this about climate change. He said, it began to belatedly dawn on me that we were not having an argument at all. We were, we, are, we were having a fight. And fights are not about reason and data and research. Fights are about money and power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the reason I asked you about the beats is because I happen to ag agree with him in terms of climate change. But you could say almost the same thing about anything, about any beat. That it's not really about reason and data. I mean, data and yeah. research. That it's just about money and power, and that's kind of what. Well, you're I think I think that that does seem to be, you know, increasingly true. Was it was it always true? And you know, those of us who were in journalism suffered under the delusion that it wasn't true. Um, I don't think that's entirely the case. I do think that there have been changes, and and much of that has to do you know, in my view, once again, unfortunately, with changes in the media landscape itself. Um, and, you know, we keep, people keep reverting back to, uh, to use a very timely example, the Nixon, the Watergate hearings, where there seemed to be, you know, the possibility that there would be information that would have a, an impact on um, the outcome of that, of those hearings. And, 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 and I think you could say there was, you know. Sure. Um, and now we look at the impeachment hearings that are occurring right now, and and one has to conclude that, you know, truly short of murdering someone on Fifth Avenue, 
there would be, it would, it's very hard to imagine a, a new fact or set of facts that would convince, you know, some people, many people, um, unfortunately, that this is a guy, uh, Donald Trump is a guy who, you know, is, is very dangerous, deserves to be impeached, has committed crimes, whatever you want to say. And I think that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a scholar of American history. I'm not a scholar of the media. Um, but it does seem, I think it seems to many people, it's not at all an original insight that something has changed here where, uh, the, and potentially, you know, climate change, the so-called debate over climate change was a practice run for this idea that, well, people will, if you throw up anything often enough and just create your own alternative narrative, if it's one that people have any inclination to believe, I don't think you can get them to believe anything at all, but if they have the inclination to believe it, uh, there will be an audience and it will be a significant audience. And if you can keep, you know, get some kind of traction for that out there on Fox News or Twitter or wherever, you can really create a whole alternative narrative that will make it very difficult for what, you know, I would say is the real narrative um, to compete. So the one of the things that's I've been one of the threads I've been tugging on on Mm -hmm. this relates to a lot of stuff that has to do with confirmation bias and and Mm -hmm. so forth. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to play one other clip for you. I'm going to eat up another two minutes of my time with uh, an interview. You know who Daniel Kahneman is? He's a psychologist. Right. So he did this interview. I've read a lot of his stuff. He did this interview Mm -hmm. uh, recently with Krista Tippett for her podcast on being, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it goes to this issue, but he says it in such a way that, I, I've played it many times, and it kind of haunts me. And I want to haunt you. I want to haunt you too. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so here's the the clip of the two of them on on her show. So here it is. The way that the mind works very frequently is that we start from a decision, or we start from a belief, and then the stories that explain it mm. come to our mind, and. The, the sequence that we have when we think about thinking, that arguments come first and conclusions come later, that sequence is often reversed. Conclusions right. come first and rationalizations come later. But isn't it interesting that the discipline, or at least the ideal, idealized discipline of politics or political science, you know, the way we think you have a debate, right? And then somehow the best idea will appear, will appear right to everyone, <laughs> and and that's not in fact the way. As you're saying, that's not even the way our brains work. Absolutely, I mean, certainly, you know, what is happening in the United States in the last uh, six months is, you know, it's really a testimony to that sort of process. You have people on the left. You know, probably, possibly the majority of the country, certainly, you know, the people that Donald Trump calls elites, and they cannot believe what they see in the polls every week, which is that behaviors that appear to them to be crazy have absolutely no effect on the popularity of the president among a group of his supporters. You read the New York Times... And you feel that everybody who writes there 
cannot make their peace with the fact that you know the support right. That's is what I mean. Stable. They're always surprised In by the same thing things over and over and over again. As, shocked. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. You know why don't they change their mind? And the reason they don't change their mind is that facts don't matter, or they matter much less than people think. And people on both sides believe that there are facts that support them, but those beliefs should not be taken too seriously. Now, the reason I played that clip for you is because so much of the conversations I've had with a lot of journalist friends of mine have to do with sort of the media environment. You know, the media ecosystem has changed, and that's really been the thing. But you listen to Kahneman and you read his stuff, what he's really saying is, it's not really that, it's that we've misjudged the way people think. And that that's the problem the journalists face at this point, is that you, you know, that we're all serving up facts. And as Kahneman says, people don't work the way that journalists have long assumed they've worked. Is that, do you think that's fair? I mean, is that, do you think that's true? Well, I, I think that it's an interplay between the two. I think that, you know, pe people's minds have always worked, you know, I would, I would argue more or less the same way. We're not very different from, you know, what we were during Watergate or even during, you know, Paleolithic times. Um, and so part of the, and I obviously completely agree with um, Daniel Kahneman that facts are, um, you know, not, not wildly relevant to people. And I wrote a whole piece and actually it was, I think, the most popular piece I ever wrote for The New Yorker was called Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds. Um, and it relied on a book that really heavily on a book that made the point that, you know, rationality is an evolved trait. It's not some miraculous thing um, that, you know, arose sui generis. It, it evolved in humans and it didn't evolve to solve, you know, the kinds of problems that we confront today or logical puzzles. It evolved, it evolved to win arguments. That's what we're really interested in. That was their argument. And I, but I think that the the thing is that people are very mal are, are malleable to a large extent, and what they want to believe and what they think they should believe, and all sorts of things are, um, you know, it's not history could go, move in many it could have gone many different ways depending on what message uh, rises to the fore for for reasons that you know I don't think we can necessarily predict in advance, but we could can retrospectively, you know, sometimes discern, you know, why certain things caught on and, and, and didn't. And I so I think that the human, you know, tendency to try to fit the facts to fit what you want to believe is, is all augmented and supported now by a media landscape where that is much, much, much easier to do. It was much, it was much harder to do you know, when Walter Cronkite was a figure of trust and right. what Walter said, you know, um, had a certain calming and convincing quality to it. Now, if, if you think that what, you know, I don't know who the hell's on Fox these days, but Sean Hannity or whatever is your Walter Cronkite or Rachel Maddow is your Walter Cronkite, obviously you will have two very different worldviews. But more, more generically, when you sit down to read the newspaper, what are you mm -hmm. doing? Are you gathering facts to to, you know, reassess your, your position, or are you just gathering facts to support what you already think? Well, I, I, I think it's, you know, I also think it's 
it's also obviously not true. And history is replete with examples where what we would consider an explosive story changes the narrative. And so I don't think it's one or the other. I think that, um, you know, and this, this gets back to, you know, or gets to what, you know, many people spend their time now talking about, you know, what's going to go viral, what's going to, going to stick, you know, but, but throughout history, there have been, you know, either because events are just so compelling, you can't, you know, look away from them or ideas or whatever. So it's it's not, it's clearly not, you know, we humans are, are very complicated and societies are very complicated and there's no, you can't say, well, there was never anything that changed anyone's mind. Right. Sure. There are many, many, many things. And, you know, when I read the newspaper personally, you know, very often things challenge my worldview. How's that? And like what? Uh, give me an example of give me an example of something that you believe for a long time. And then you were presented with a new set of facts and you went, oh, my gosh, I've totally mi- missed the boat on that one. Well, I, I think if it's something that you've believed for a long time and, you know, but, you know, presumably you have been following and it's that much harder. But, you know, for example, there, you know, there's a story today where, you know, the, the, the leader of Myanmar, whose name I don't want to mangle. Um, if you're broadcasting this, but, you know, she was a Nobel Prize winner. She was many people's, you know, heroine. I've read about her over the years and she's, you know, and now we're seeing, uh, and over the years that has been very much chipped away. And now, you know, we're seeing her basically, you know, defend war crimes, you know, and, uh, or genocide. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not in Myanmar. It's not, it's not an issue that I would claim to be very, very knowledgeable in or very, very invested in. But that's an example of something where, you know, clearly the narrative has changed and many people would now have a very different view of what's going on. How's that? Okay. I mean, it's not, it's, it's the assessment of a person, clearly. Um, yes, the assessment of a person and, and her politics. Right. right. And, and, but I mean, what, what are we talking about that, that, you know, you know, you're going to change my view of, of gravity. You know, what, what exactly are we talking about? Right. So we're talking about something between those two things, you know, Mm -hmm. not a single person. I thought they were nice. They're not so nice, you know, versus, uh, bigger picture stuff, just, you know, things that move you on larger ways of seeing the world, you know, your worldview. I, oh, I, you know, sort of, uh, road to Damascus kinds of moments about any range of things where you're just thinking, oh, wow, I, I oriented all around this, but not true. But I, no, I, I, mean, I think, I think, you know, you could, you could talk about, you know, Daniel Kahneman's work and, you know, all of their work on heuristics and that really changed people's <laughs> um, view of the world, you know? So, yeah. so this is a somewhat of a, of a, you know, self, self-consuming argument. Sure. Um, I get it. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, could you convince me that climate change is not real? It would be unbelievably hard to do that, um, but I don't want to say that you know if every scientist in the country or you know ninety seven percent of all scientists or whatever that crazy figure is you know said oh we you know we look through everything we realize there's you know a big boo boo here right <laughs> um, you know could I be convinced you know yes I'm not a scientist I have to go on what people are saying and there are very often things you read. You know, I mean, are they trivial? Do they get at your worldview fundamentally? My my own worldview, once again, as a journalist, I think is actually fairly malleable because, 
you know, that's what I am sort of invested in. I'm invested in going where the facts take you. Um, now I'm not a person, you know, many, many of these debates, they, you know, center on people's religious convictions. They're very strongly held cultural beliefs. I, I don't feel that I'm part of it. You know, I'm probably not looking at myself very honestly, maybe, but, um, anyway, I think being a journalist does put you in a slightly different category because once again, that's what you are invested. Right. In. Sure, sure, sure. Two other things and I'll let you go because I don't sure. want to run too long. One of them is part of my interest is sort of is journalism, but also mm -hmm. it's about storytelling. And, mm -hmm. you know, I follow mm -hmm. Jay Rosen. I don't know if you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. at NYU, he's a media critic and, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm looking at a tweet that he, uh, wrote last year and he I'll just read it to you it says I don't mm -hmm. know how our journalists came to see storytelling as the heart of what they do and storyteller is a self-description I can think of four or five elements of journalism more central than story truth-telling grounding public conversation in fact verification and listening and it has made me think and I've been thinking about this for a while why have so many journalists become you know storytellers why is story so important to what journalists do? Well, I, I think it's important, you know, for unbelievably practical reasons. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not being critical of Jay Rosen here, whom I don't know, and much of whose work I, I admire. But, you know, when, when a journalist talks about a story, it's like, how, how do I get it in the paper? You know, I have to have a story. I can't say I have a collection of, you know, random interesting facts, right? We all know if you're a working journalist, um, a story to you is not, you know, it's not war and peace. It's like, you know, how, how did, how does this have some shape as something that, um, is in, should be, should be in the paper, can be inserted into the conversation, seems to, um, have some kind of, of, um, narrative urgency. How's that? And if you can't do that, if you can't demonstrate that to your editors, you know, it simply doesn't exist as a piece of work. So I don't think that a lot of journalists, you know, myself included, and, you know, I tend to write longer now, but I've spent many years writing at the New York Times where, you know, I, I had a sense of what a story was, what was going to get in the paper. Uh, and that's how journalists work. You know? Well, there's a, there's a guy that I've been having a lot of interaction with the last couple of months named Randy Olson. He wrote this book called, yep, yep, uh, you know, you know, he yep, has, he yep, says story yep. circles and so on. And I read his book on narrative and he gives this little history of what journalism was like in the late 1800s. And it really wasn't story driven the way it is now that the description you just gave me about how does a, uh, a journalist get up an article in the newspaper, you have to have a story, you have to have a character, you've got to have all of these elements of story. That wasn't the case 100 years ago. And so I'm interested in why has that changed? Why do readers, and I know readers demand it, you just can't lay facts on them, but what's changed in that we need the journalist to put these facts in a narrative package as opposed to saying, we assume you already have some worldview or some way of seeing the world, then these facts will fit into that framework for you because you already have it. Why, why, why the change? Well, I, I can't speak to that because, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time um, reading 19th century, uh, <laughs> you know, newspapers, to be honest. And I think that, you know, when you read them now, you know, sensibilities change and, you know, we are all shaped. Obviously, we've been shaped by TV. We've been shaped by all of the different 
kinds of media that we're now exposed to, which they obviously were not exposed to, you know. So has that has that you know raised the bar for what we're willing to pay attention to? You know, when you often when you read, you know, these sort of you know, occasionally I do read stuff from old newspapers, and they and it and it can seem first of all, very unsubstantiated. Where are you getting that information? A lot of it was just, you know, someone hearsay, right? Um, and, you know, whatever you could gather as 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 a, as a journalist um, and, you know, sort of throw into a, into a package that, you know, even so had to have some kind of reason to write it. It wasn't just, you know, although, you know, although newspapers obviously also had just sort of heard and seen columns, right? Just little snippets. So there are all ways sorts of ways of conveying information, which, you know, we do now in a tweet, et cetera. So there, there's always information ricocheting around in a lot of ways. Um, Has our, um, you know, tolerance for things that don't seem to have a coherent narrative of any kind uh, been worn away by being constantly told that that is what narrative is? That's a really good question. And I can't, I can't answer that, but, but I do want to say, I just do want to say that, you know, what a journalist idea of a story is and, and, and what a fiction writer's idea of a story is, those are, we use the same words, but they're, they're pretty different. Tell me very quickly why, (laughs) why, why are they different? Because a journalist will tell a story that doesn't have a, you know, it doesn't have rising action. It doesn't have a you know, doesn't have a beginning, middle, and an end. It's just a uh, something happened today. A lot of what you read still when you go to the New York Times website or any website now of any. It's more company, of an anecdote. It's like something happened, and here's here's reaction to it, right? You know, president. You know, the articles of impeachment were drafted today, right? I mean, that's a story. You know, uh, it's it's not a very good story. It's not a story that you know would make good dramatic. Uh, reading, but it's a story it, to a journalist. That's well, that's a hell of a story. Well, you know, I should tell you, I'm in a mixed marriage. My my wife is a sociologist and very kind of data driven, and I spent a lot of time just in you know narrative and anecdote <laughs> world. And I used to have arguments with her about you know how people think, how people reason, what's what's needed. And over time, I've sort of realized that her way of approaching things makes far more sense, but it requires an ability to sort of abstract things, take data and generalizations, as opposed to focusing on a person and an an event. And I always think, you know, in the context of, of climate, if you want to argue from anecdote, then you're stuck with some senator on the floor, you know, of the Senate holding a snowball saying, you know, what climate change? And, and, and to really understand the things that you, that you write about, you need to be able to have that ability to abstract. You know, it's not just one thing, it's many things. Absolutely. And that's why climate change, you know, on some level makes a very bad story. It's a very, very bad story. It's everything. Now, everything is not a good story, (laughs) you know, and I think that 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 is a real problem. I, you know, very few people have felt it as keenly as I have. Sure, sure. Well, Well, the last question to wrap up, and that is... um, to go back to the long form interview that you did with Evan um, and it's a sort of a variation of what he asked you. And that is, you know, if, if you knew 25 years ago, what you know today about climate change, about journalism, about people, would, would you have followed the same professional path or would you have done something else? 
That's a really good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, that's such a hypothetical. It's hard for me to answer, but I think, you know, I, I suppose, you know, basically I, I feel I probably would have done the same thing, you know, in part because of what my own, you know, talents or lack thereof consist of. And, you know, in part because, you know, one does things for, for a whole bunch of different reasons, you know, you know, only, only even in journalism, only one of which ultimately is, well, this is what's going to make the difference, you know? Well, I, I should tell you that, uh, you know, I studied economics as an undergraduate, and I've gotten very interested in the, the, there's a new book out by an economist, Nobel Prize winning economist at Yale by the name of Richard uh, Schiller, I think yeah. his name is. Uh -huh, and the uh -huh. book is called Narrative Economics. Yeah. I and saw so that. you've seen this. So I, yeah. and I've watched some, I've listened to some of his lectures, and I was talking to an old econ professor of mine a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this, and I was laughing because. Schiller's saying, really, the place we need to go, you know, to really our next stage of development of economic thinking is the literature department. And I know you studied literature when you were an undergraduate. So things are really coming back your way, you know, where you were, you know, when you went to college. That's really, that's the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, the narratives I studied when I went to college, I don't think uh, are the economic narratives that Robert Schiller has in mind. Although, yeah, I, what can I say? Tell me, tell me what you're doing with all this. I'm just curious. Yeah, I'll send you a link to it. I'm, I'm really just kind of uh, tugging, like I said, tugging on these threads because they've interested me for a while, and it's taking me down just a lot of routes that I find interesting. I've set up a sort of a site that really is just more of a sandbox for me to uh, play around with some of the stuff. But I don't know what what I'm I, I, at this point. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But I'll send you a link to the to the site that I just put up a couple of days ago. Okay, sure. Um, and, uh, and I really appreciate you doing this and I hope you're, you're feeling better after the, the, <laughs> the, the, the trip. Yes. I, I'm, I think I'm hopefully on the mend. Thank you. All thanks right. a lot. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, first of all, thanks again to Elizabeth for taking the time to talk to me and for answering a few of those questions that I, I have a hunch she's been asked a few times before. And you know, it, it's funny, uh, during the interview, I mentioned Robert Schiller and his new book, Narrative Economics. And I went back and looked at Schiller's book, and Elizabeth was right. Schiller does focus on uh, the more mundane stories people tell each other, you know, at the office or at a bar or wherever, and not really on literature. But there actually are economists who are expressing what I can only call uncharacteristic interest in literature, you know, economists who want to learn more about how people really behave by reading the stories of Tolstoy and Dickens and Dostoevsky and Jane Austen and so forth. And what popped to mind was a few years ago, two uh, scholars at Northwestern University wrote a book called Sense and Sensibility. That's Sense, C-E-N-T-S, Sense and Sensibility, What Economics Can Learn from the Humanities. And it's written by Morton Shapiro, who's an economist, and Gary Saul Morrison, who teaches Russian literature. And I got to admit, I find this kind of funny and sort of a source of hope, too. Because when I majored in economics almost 40 years ago, no self-respecting econ professor at my university would have been caught dead talking about how 
economic man, how homo economicus could learn something, could learn anything from Jane Austen. But evidently, it's beginning to happen now. So I think that's probably proof that people do change, but I guess they just need to be reading the right kinds of stories. So, all right, uh, that's it for now. Thanks again to Elizabeth Colbert, and thank you for listening, and see you next time. If you feel all right to say yes, I said if you feel all right, say yes. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.